0: So let me start from this morning. Um, I finished, and I always pray with people at the end of the services, although I, I ran for the airplane after the second service, but I did pray with a lot of people after the first service, and I want to tell you why what I have to say tonight is relevant from three prayers this morning. Number one, a camp counselor comes up, about your age probably, heading for camp with young people, all worked up because he had just talked with the supervisors of the camp about what he had planned to teach them, and they didn't want him to teach it. Namely, he wanted to talk about the sovereignty of God. And they said, oh, children don't need about the sovereignty of God. Children shouldn't be taught about the sovereignty of God. And he was just deeply grieved and exercised and wanted me to pray with him. And I want to say to you, children need to know a great, big, glorious, sovereign God, and they're the easiest ones to teach it to. So, don't skip it. Don't don't create a college crisis if you don't have to. Number, number two, a woman in her 50s just had a, a nine-inch ovarian tumor taken out of her body three weeks ago, I was in church again now, and will go in for the chemo and all of her hair will come out. It's a stage three cancer. She's standing there with her husband, Don and exulting in the greatness and glory and sovereign goodness of God in her life. I've seen it for years after years. I just can't get it when people say that to have a rock under your feet like the sovereignty of God in His goodness is not a helpful thing pastorally. I've never known such a thing. So that's number number two. If you have cancer or your mom does, what I have to say really matters. It really, really matters. And the third one was, slipping my mind right now, I'm looking for my notes here. Oh, yes, how can I forget? A man named John, first time in our church, because he's jumping around because of the pain in his life, his wife walked away from him two months ago, and uh, after 21 years of marriage, sitting in our church for the first time, hearing me talk about God's gracious purposefulness in our lives and comes up to me afterwards and said, this was totally for me. So, God is sovereign. God is purposeful. God is gracious. And it really matters. It really matters. Now, the way I put it this morning, and I'm this is the bridge leading into where we're going here, is I, I'm, talking, I'm preaching my way through the Gospel of John. So I'm into chapter 4 now, and I was talking about the first 15 verses of John 4 about the woman at the well, and Jesus says, I have to go through Samaria, and... Everything he was doing was purposeful here. He, he had his target on this woman. God is seeking such to worship him in spirit and truth. This is John's version of the prodigal daughter story, and he's after her. And I made the point that since he's so purposeful, pause, God, anytime he does anything in your life, anytime he bumps you, He's doing a million things. Every time God does one thing to you, He's doing a million things. He knows the trajectory of every molecule He bumps, and it bumps another and another and another forever. And he knows them all, millions of ages into the future. And what happens now makes a difference there because everything relates to everything when God's in charge of everything. He's always doing a million things in your life when you see him doing one thing and you see two reasons and neither of them explain. And you're mad at him. And I just said to our folks, you know, it it's not wise to get mad at God because you can't see enough reasons for why this just happened to you because there are a million. And I illustrated with Jesus walks into Samaria, which Jews didn't like to do. He sits down on a well which surely would be considered unclean because these Samaritans are half-breeds and they're heretics because they don't believe any part of the Bible except the first five books, and they're religious and and political rebels from 700 years ago, and he sits on this well at broad noon daylight, and a Samaritan woman comes whom he knows has slept with six men in serial adultery, is living with a man who's not her husband and says to her, not, can I have permission to drink from your well, but can I drink from your bucket? She said, Jews and Sumerians don't soon my. They don't use together. They used separate fountains at Woolworths and Walgreens and Cresses in 1959. And therefore, what Jesus was doing in 30 A.D., in Sychar, in Samaria, was all about Greenville, South Carolina, 1959, 13-year-old John Piper. That's what he was doing then, and a million other things. So, I regard it as gloriously significant that we have an infinitely purposeful, sovereign, gracious, good Savior who pursues us, Thousands of years before we were born to rescue us from our racism and other sins. Now, where are we going in this message? That was all spillover from this morning. (laughs) This is a conference with a theme of sin, and when I heard that a year or so ago, I said, well, the easiest thing for me to do would be to talk from the book that was just quoted to you. In fact, I leaned over to John MacArthur as Rick was reading that and said, There goes my first paragraph, which is true. No, it's it's the second paragraph. So where I'm going is to argue for God's supreme right and authority, and active sovereignty over all things, including sin," that's where we're going, including tonight, in particular, Lucifer's sin, the fall of the holy angels, and Adam's sin, the fall of humanity. Those two is where we'll focus. And my argument is, according to that paragraph, everything, absolutely everything exists, including the devil and a fallen Adam, for the glory of Jesus Christ. And that's what I'll try to argue here. Now, the reason I am exercised about this and have been for some years is because I read my Bible from cover to cover every year, plus lots more, and I bump into texts like these. Let me read you a few. Second Chronicles ten fifteen, Jeroboam rejected the wisdom of the old men and said to the people, My father disciplined you with whips but I will discipline you with scorpions." And then the inspired writer says, "'The king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by God that the Lord might fulfill His word.'" Well, that was sin for him to reject such good a counsel, and, and so God is somehow managing, ordering the sins of kings. 2 Chronicles 18.22, King Ahab is enticed by false prophets to go up and fight against the Syrians, and Micaiah, the true prophet, says, (coughs) Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster concerning you. So however God did it, so that he remains impeccably holy, he ordained that there be a lying spirit in the mouth of the false prophets. Second Chronicles 2520, Joash, king of Israel, gave wise counsel to Amaziah, king of Judah, not to go out and battle his own people. But Amaziah refused to listen, and the inspired writer says this, but Amaziah would not listen for it was of God, in order that He might give Him into the hand of their enemies, because they had sought the gods of Edom." That's what I find when I read my Bible through year after year, or here's a good summary one from Proverbs sixteen four: the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble to which I ask, what purpose? And that's where I'm going to go now, and if you have a Bible and you can see it, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1 for the answer to that question. We'll be looking at two or three or four passages, some in more detail, but let's go here to Colossians 1.16. I regard these words as breathtakingly glorious and among the most important in the Bible, and especially for perhaps young people who are forming worldviews. You need some simple truths. You can't remember Wayne Gruden's systematic theology, would that you could, but you can't. You need, you need a few sentences to live by. Because when the pressure's on, all you can remember is sentences. You can't remember books, let alone paragraphs. You can't do it. You have to have sentences, crisp, clear, short, true, solid, ultimate, all-encompassing sentences. That's, this is one of them. It's not short, but it's the others. Here we are, Colossians 1.16, for by Him, Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. That's important. That is so important. Just get that. Get that. All things were made for Christ. That means for his honor, for his fame, for his glory, not for his improvement. You can't improve upon the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, very God of very God. What you can do is make much of him display Him, honor Him, magnify Him, glorify Him, praise Him, reflect Him. That's what this for means. For Him. Now that's a sweeping statement. Every university should have it over every door. This class for Christ. This science for Christ. This seminar for Christ because everything exists for Christ. Now, I'll skip the paragraph that was just read and simply say, of all the thousands of things that Paul could have named in verse 16 that he made and that exist for him, look what he named, thrones, dominions, rulers and authorities." Now Paul knows, he's writing, he knows what he means when he says rulers and authorities. He means wicked heavenly powers. The reason we know that is because of chapter 2, verse 15. This, This very phrase, sometimes translated principalities and powers in the ESV, rulers and authorities, You go over to Colossians 2.15, it says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Same phrase. You go over to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities. These are cosmic evil powers out to destroy you. Of course, the destruction might be by making you rich, but destroy you. And chapter 1, verse 16 says, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities were made by Him and for Him. The devil exists for the glory of Christ. And so do all his minions who obey him when he says, go. Now, it does not say he created them evil. It says he made them. In fact, little Jude over near the end of the Bible says, angels, angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling 2nd Peter and Jude give us a little window onto pre-earth heaven where this evident rebellion took place and angels that were created good rebelled. Hmm. However, Paul knows something else about God, namely that God knows the future perfectly. So before he made all those angels, he dealt in his mind with the certain prospect that they would rebel. He dealt with that. He thought that through and what the implications of it would be before he made them. And then he made them. Now, I use the word ordain as my verb of choice when I talk about God's sovereignty over sin, and I'm not weaseling, I'll explain what I mean by God ordains the fall of Lucifer, the fall of the angels who fell. You, inside the word ordain, there is the possibility of his causing something directly and the possibility of his permitting something to happen knowing what all the implications of that will be. Whether he causes directly or permits with infinite knowledge and wisdom concerning what will come of what he permits, he's ordaining. That's what I mean. I'm just not choosing. I find it doesn't help. When you say God causes or God permits, you're damned with one and you're damned with the other because they both miss the main point, namely, he's in charge. He could stop it, and he doesn't. And in not stopping it, he has reasons, and reasons are purposeful. And therefore, there's design in what he permits. And therefore, when I say he ordains, I mean he has a history in view and he's going somewhere with what he permits to happen. That's the way I'm talking about the ordaining of or the governance of sin or the fall. So, Paul knows that God knows before creation that His heavenly creatures and earthly creatures are going to go wrong. He knows that. And He makes them anyway, certainly knowing they're going to go wrong. Now, let me give you a couple of passages where I get that idea. I'm not just inferring that theologically from God's infiniteness. I could. I think that would be warranted, but people get bent out of shape when you do theology like that. Better to be biblical than to be theological. So let me read you two passages of Scripture, see if you infer from them what seems obvious to me. This is Revelation 13, verse 8. It's about the beast and those who don't worship him. It goes like this, all who dwell on the earth, Revelation 13:8, all who dwell on the earth will worship it, the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book. Now the book has a, a name. Here's the name of the book. So before the foundation of the world, there's a book. and in the book there are names. And the names that are in the book don't worship the beast. Everybody else does. What's the name of the book? It's the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Christ, in the mind of God, was already planned to be slain for sin before He made anything. So, He obviously knew that when He made Anything it was going to turn out to need dying for. That's clear. I think. Second text. Second Timothy one nine. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Before the ages began, we got unmerited grace in Christ Jesus. Which clearly, in all the other places where Paul talks about grace in Christ Jesus was bought for us by the Lamb on the cross. There's grace for sinners like us because the Lamb was slain. And we received that grace in Christ Jesus before anything was created. Which means that when he made the angels and he made Adam and Eve, He knew exactly where this was going, and it was all part of a magnificent plan to do what, according to Colossians 1.16? Magnify Christ. All things were created through him and for him. This entire history is to make Christ look great. You need a cause to live for. Join the biggest cause in the universe. I don't even know how to, I don't even know how to say it because the universe is too small. There was no universe when this plan was made. Nothing had come into being and he saw his son crucified the pinnacle of the display of the glory of His grace, and everything is planned to get there. So, get a sentence that sums that up for you, and live it. Join Him in it. It'll keep you from a thousand stupidities, a thousand wasted days, so many sins, so much deacon around on the computer, deakin around, wasting your life with stuff, if you know that you're caught up into something so absolutely spectacularly breathtakingly magnificent as before there was anything, God Almighty is planning the display of the glory of His Son in history through the fall of Lucifer and the fall of Adam. So here we are now with the rulers and authorities back in chapter 1, verse 16. Rulers and authorities have been made for Christ. That seems to imply that they're going to do God's bidding. Because he's got a purpose by which he's guiding everything for the glory of his son. And this is what I think we need to tell our children. If they ask you a question about, Daddy, how strong is Satan? Can Satan stop God from doing what he wants to do, Daddy? You better have an answer for that. And it's real clear no. And, and then ch- the child will say, good, because I was scared last night. I mean, kids are ready for this glorious teaching. It's only college students that aren't ready. They're too smart. Now, we are not dualists. So I'm saying. We're, we, we, we Christians don't say, here's God and here's Satan. Here's the principalities and powers, and here's God, and the kind of vying and jockeying with two different powers, and this one has ultimate self-determination. And this one has ultimate self-determination, and you just don't know quite how it's going to go today, tomorrow, forever. It's just totally not what's in the Bible. That's so obvious, but texts, texts. John 12:31. Satan is called the ruler of this world. That's serious. Ruler of this world. Daniel 4.17 says, the most high is the ruler over the realms of mankind. Yes, Satan has a delegated kind of sway in this fallen world, and he does his bidding, and God rules over him. Unclean spirits, Jesus Dealt with them, they're they're running rampant all over Palm Springs and all over the world, inclining people to evil. Are they free? Mark 127. He commands the unclean spirits and they obey him. Period. This is six-year-old theology. Awesome theology. I'm scared, Daddy. I think there's a monster in the closet and you say well what if there is <laughs> because jesus says monster you stay in the closet and you stay you stay in the closet john 8:44 Satan is a murderer. He's a murderer. Really. James four fifteen, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go up to such and such a town and trade and get gain. You don't know about tomorrow. What is your life? Your life is like a vapor. Rather, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live. And if he doesn't, then Satan can kill you, but not if he wills that he not kill you. Of course, Satan can kill you. It says so in Revelation 2.10. He's going to put people to death, but not without God loosening his leash to do it. That's why there are martyrs, according to chapter 6, verse 11, appointed to die, because God is going to give leash to the devil in the last days, and he's going to waste the church. But God will not have lost control. That's why the book of Revelation is in the Bible. So that when those kinds of things happen, we don't say, yeah, what happened to God? God is in heaven and ruling over the beast and the false prophet and the devil himself. Job, clear as daylight, isn't it, that Satan comes to Job and once at him and God says you you can have his stuff but you can't touch him so he kills his kids comes back job hasn't given up his faith and says skin for skin let me have his skin and then he'll curse you and God says you can have his skin but don't you don't you kill him. In other words, this dynamic that's going on here is you can't do anything without my permission, Satan. And Satan knows it. We are not dualists. What about Luke 22:31? I love this text. Jesus says to Peter, Poor Peter, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, pause there and ask, okay, does Satan get his request with Peter? Jesus said, this is Luke 22, 31, 32. Satan demanded to have you, Peter, that he might sift you like wheat. I think that means put Peter in the sieve, push him through so that everything comes through but his faith. Get his faith out of him. They got Peter minus faith. (laughs) So that's what Satan has asked and put you through the sieve, and there's the useless Peter. And then Jesus says, But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And then this glorious word, when, not if. When you turn, strengthen your brothers. (laughs) You talk about sovereignty in the face of in the face of sin and Satan. What a horrible thing for Peter to do, to deny his Lord. And Jesus is orchestrating in his prayer to the Father how far he will let Satan make Peter go and know. Farther, when you turn, be my rock. I love a sovereign Savior. The only reason any of you has not made shipwreck of your faith is that Jesus is praying for you today in heaven at the Father's right hand. One more, just to prove we're not dualists here. 2 Corinthians 4:4 four, four, The god of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers, okay? Now we're in big trouble because you got a supernatural power blinding the minds of unbelievers. We have a lot of peace shooter power in ourselves are getting nowhere with demonic blindness. You've tried, haven't you? I have how helpless, how helpless we feel. And then you get that's Second Corinthians four four, just two verses later, the God who said, "Let light shine out of darkness," has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, which is uh, in, how to go. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He gives light in the heart. Satan doesn't have the last word when it comes to blindness. God can shatter that blindness any time He wants with His sovereign, let there be light. And that's how you got saved. He said that into your heart. So, drawing to a conclusion, the first part about Satan and the rulers and the authorities, God is sovereign over Satan and all of Satan's horrible deeds. He hasn't lost control of history or of your life or your parents' lives or your church. Colossians 1.16, let it be loud and clear. He made all things on earth, in heaven, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, powers and authorities, rulers and authorities. He created them for him for Christ. So sin in Satan and from Satan is under God's, Christ's sway and it is for His glory. So the Son of God, Jesus Christ, will be more highly honored If Satan exists, then if he doesn't. Now, have you ever asked, I ask this repeatedly and try to reestablish my answer, why doesn't he just get rid of him? Why doesn't God get rid of him? Because he's going to do it in the last day, isn't he? He's going to take him and first throw him in the pit and then later throw him in the lake of fire and he's over. He's history. He's never going to torment or tempt anybody again in the new heavens and the new earth. So why not now? It would just spare us so much trouble, wouldn't it? So Jesus, you have authority. You have power. You have rights. You're going to do it. Just do it now. Why doesn't he? He's not protecting Satan's free will <laughs> because he's going to throw him in the lake of fire against his will. <laughs> so it's not, that's no answer. Here's, here's my answer, Christ would get glory if He strong-armed Satan now and just threw him in the lake of fire. We'd all praise him. But if he dies to disarm the principalities and powers and forgive us our sins, and then patiently, mercifully, win for himself a following because of his superior beauty, over time, if he saves us from Satan that way, he will get more glory than if he only manifested power. If you tonight conquer Satan by a superior admiration for the glories of Christ crucified and risen, you are glorifying more of Christ than if you only glorified him for his raw power in dispensing Satan into Hell. Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. Meaning, now at the cross. The glory of God's grace reached its apex at the cross. And Paul said, We preach Christ crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So that wisdom and that power would not have been seen had Christ not defeated Satan by this way rather than raw power. But here's one more text that gets more at the essence of what's going on in your life. Listen to this. Do you remember... 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul sees wonders in heaven that he's not allowed to say anything about, and to check his own pride, God ordains that he have a thorn, and the thorn is called a messenger of what? Satan. So, God is using Satan for sanctification here, right? The thorn is designed for humility, and Satan hates humility, and so God is making Satan against his will serve Paul's sanctification. Why? Listen to these words. When Paul says, please take it away, no. Please take it away, no. Please take it away, Jesus, it hurts. He says, no. And then Jesus says this, my power is made perfect in weakness. Satan is being defeated by the revelation of the superior power of Christ in Paul's gladly embracing insults, hardships, tribulation, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then am I strong. In other words, there is a way for Christ to be magnified. There's a way for Christ to be triumphant and glorified that doesn't just involve raw power to dispense Satan into hell. It's a lifelong kind of warfare that you're involved in making him look great by gladly embracing the thorns that He gives you so that His power can be made perfect in your weakness. This is very strange and very glorious. You are involved in the triumph over the devil by how you admire Christ to the point where your soul is so satisfied that you can actually use with Paul the word gladly, I will all the more gladly boast in my insults, calamities, hardships, persecutions. So, I don't think God is making any mistake in leaving Satan in the world for now. If his aim is to magnify the beauty and the triumph of his son. Just a few, maybe, closing minutes on the fall of man. We spent all of our time so far on saying that God is sovereign over the origin of Satan out of a good angel through means that nobody understands except God. I have zero explanation for how a good angel chose to sin. If you're wondering, you got any mysteries in your life? (laughs) That's the biggest. The first sin in the universe is the biggest mystery to me. I know of no explanation for it that satisfies. What I do know is God was sovereign over it, and He's absolutely holy and never sins. So I have a category in my head for God ordaining that sin be without sinning. You have that category? If you don't have that category in your brain, you're going to stumble over a lot of parts of the Bible. Let me say it again. The category says, God ordains that sin be without himself sinning when he ordains that sin be. So, I don't know how it happened. I don't know how to explain what went on inside a holy angel's head that would make him sin. That is the ultimate mystery. But I do know God governs that and never sins. Now, with regard to Adam, we've already seen that God had a book before the creation of the world named the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. And we all know that the reason the Lamb was slain is so that we would not perish but have everlasting life. And we know that we are perishing because we are sinners. And we know that we are sinners because we were in Adam. And when he sinned, we sinned. And everybody has been sinning since Adam. And therefore, God in planning the cross planned the fall. Now, let's go to Romans 5, and I want to show you just a few things. We'll take maybe five more minutes and uh, try to do this quickly. Romans 5. Worthy of five hours? Let's try to do it in five minutes. (laughs) Romans 5, one of the weightiest, most amazing passages verses 12 to 19 about the comparison between Jesus and Adam, first Adam, second Adam. What is going on here? What is the ultimate thing that chapter 5, 12 to 19 is saying? Let's see if we can get that. Let's start at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. That's the fall. Fall. Adam and Eve sinned, death and death through sin, that's why we all die, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there's no law, and yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who's sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. And then he adds at this particular point, and this is his main assertion, who was a type of the one who was to come. Okay, now get this. At the very point where he says death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose transgression wasn't like Adam. In other words, they're dying, and their sin wasn't like his, and so their death is owing, and their sin is owing to somehow being connected with him. That is a type of the one who is to come. Right here he says it. That's a type. You know what a type is? A a foreshadowing a glimpse in other words god is aiming at christ he knows he knows there is a lamb who's going to be slain and in preparation for him he creates a type of him so that when he comes explanations could be given about his achievements that could not be given had not adam been a type That's the main point. God is orchestrating Adam and what happened in and after the fall so that he could say something about the superiority of Christ. And then he runs forward with it and he he shows all these much more Christ, much more Christ. And I would love to just take you verse by verse through this. But I, I think instead of that, I will, I will just, I will close by what God gave me. I think just as we were landing and I was looking down on this weird city called Palm Springs with green, tan, green, tan, green, tan, weird city. <laughs> but I was, I was mainly praying, not about that, but about this and, God, this is complicated. Help me to just c- come to an end with just a clear thing about Romans 5 because I can't get into all the detail. So here's, here's what I think. I think he led me to the last two verses, 20 and 21. Let's see if I can just say them because otherwise I have to open my Bible. And uh, I didn't plan to do that. The law came in to increase the trespass. I'll just stop there. Well, then why did you give the law? (laughs) I said why I gave the law, to increase the trespass. But, where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. So, what's he doing? He's he's calculating everything to magnify grace. But he's not done yet. So that, now we're into verse 21. So that, as sin reigned in death, grace might reign through righteousness unto eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now we know what he's after. Now we know why he gave the law. Now we know why he wanted sin to explode on the earth. Now we know why he's sovereign over sin. Now we know why he ordains the fall of man as well as Lucifer in order that grace might abound and not just any old general grace. The grace that comes through righteousness. This is the imputed righteousness of the one who perfectly obeyed in verse 19. And through that Perfect righteousness imputed to us. Grace is abounding over all our multiplied sins through whom? Jesus Christ our Lord. This universe is all about Jesus. This universe is all about the cross. It's all about the apex of the glory of grace, including the fall of Satan, and the fall of man. So I close by saying this vision of Christ is relevant for camp counselors this summer. This vision of Christ is relevant for your mom who's got ovarian cancer. And this vision of Christ is relevant for you, perhaps yourself, or your uncle or dad who was abandoned by a spouse two months ago. And this is relevant for you. Let's pray.